Hello and welcome to the first ISOL podcast. If you don't know too much about us, we are a magazine who focuses our attention on documenting cities and investigating places. As part of this, we've been speaking with writers, musicians, artists, amongst others, about how their work is influenced by the spaces and places they spend their time. And today, I'm really, really excited to say we have none other than Ian Sinclair with us, writer, psychogeographer and walking archive of London, whose work has really changed the way we understand and experience the city. He's been living in London for about half a century, documenting the way the city has changed, and for half an hour, I saw Chris Giles had the pleasure of speaking with him, discussing his famous walk around the M25 and plans for his next and unfortunately final book on London. Hello, you're listening to ISOL. It's Chris. I'm sitting in my front room here in Hackney, and I'm joined by one of the most prolific, insightful writers, filmmakers, photographers, and archivists of contemporary London, Ian Sinclair. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Who managed to get lost trying to find my way across Hackney, so that's not a good start. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you... It's, it's like about getting lost creatively, because mm. although... I knew exactly where I was, and I've been around a long time in this bit. To actually locate a single address and number out of this labyrinth is quite tricky, and that always keeps it interesting. Do you find you get lost still in Hackney, even though you've... Uh, you've well, you can it, get but... lost and not lost. You know, you, you, you know physically where you are, but where you are changes so much around you that you can actually find yourself in another space. When you moved to London um, from... It was quite a rural area in the 60s. Uh, um, yeah, well, I wasn't, I wasn't really moving to London from a rural area. I was moving to London when I moved in the 60s um, from Dublin, which was a kind of a... then a, a sleepy kind of provincial town, very, very dominated by the church and so on. But it was, a, I mean, it's obviously a, a capital city with all, all that goes on with that. So I was moving from one city to another, but, but Dublin was a, a sea city and, and it was a city with the hills at the end of the street, so it was a slightly different feel to it. And I had lived in London earlier, briefly, when I was in film school in Brixton. So I was, I was in a really urban part of London, then I went to Dublin, then I came back to London, and then I stayed. What was it like when you, when you first arrived in London? Uh, when I first arrived in London initially, in, in, uh, in 1962 or so, in Brixton, it was... Um, fairly overwhelming because just the sort of sheer scale of the thing uh, and you, I tended, as people do, to get to know the immediate locality where I was in the film school in Electric Avenue and I was pushing off on little walks on foot. It took a long time to link up the places I was going to if I went by tube down the northern line or whatever. Um, and then when I came back in the mid-60s, I was getting to know London in a different way because I was beginning to do these kind of long walks um, and search out particular sites and, and f finding them on foot rather than using public transport. So then, then I began to get a mapping of London in my head, which was not really realised till I settled in East, East London in Hackney. I, I kind of knocked about all over in different places, sleeping on floors and living in different rooms and then some friends from Dublin got a, got a house in Hackney and we had a kind of communal house there. And I, I just had a sense of recognition. All the things I liked about cities were there. You know, there was a great street markets, um, four or five cinemas on my, on my neighbourhood. 
um, hospitals, all those things that worked in those days and now it vanished. And it was also very low rent, it was very cheap, it was very, it was grubby, you know, in a, in, a, in a creative way. But there was a lot of unoccupied property, a lot of squatting going on, and it, it seemed to be a moment of great energy in the city and, and possibilities. So you talk a lot about how you engage with the city um, by walking. And lots of people in London don't walk. They'll cycle, they'll use mm. taxis, they'll use the tube. Why do you choose to engage with the city? Uh, well, well, I think now, now the, and I don't want to jump to the book I've just done called The Last London, but I, I do feel that the, the city now has undergone a, a, a really monumental change to being a different kind of city because of the things that you mentioned, that, that actually the speed of the city has increased tenfold on the back of the great sort of digital transformation. That as people are moving and walking now, they're, they're always on their tablets, their machines, they're electronically wired. Actual brain chemistry and neural pathways are changing. And the, 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 no, time seems to be shrinking to a kind of an, an eternal present that's very buzzy and active. And um, the idea of moving slowly along and observing and, in, and becoming a part in that way is very old-fashioned. Everybody streams past me as I move along because they're engaged in other kinds of dialogue. Uh, uh, initially, that wasn't so, you know, and, and um, people who were using bikes when I was first year tended to be working people going going to their jobs. There, there was no kind of uh, middle class recreational cycling, expensive cycling. And I used to go off to work for the parks department in Limehouse. I was well, I've got on an old bicycle. You know, you go, and the gardeners were supposed to have bicycles and go around cutting the grass in all these schools. So, in that sense, you know, it it, it was in a, it was slowly evolving as a city in the 60s and 70s, but it was still the same city as wartime. Now, after Margaret Thatcher and Blair, that period. We're now in a totally different place, which is a sort of global corporate entity, very interconnected, very much involved with what you're, you're doing now. You know, it's, it's a kind of endless floods of information, endlessly recording, re-recording, Xeroxing, making copies, even just coming across London Fields to come here now. I mean, I passed at least four various kinds of film crews and models having their photographs taken against grungy backdrops. There was a building that used to be a laundry for many years. As I walked past in the morning, I could see the shirts going round and round on a conveyor belt. Now it's a club where people had acid thrown on them last weekend. And then there were film news crews there, and my son is going to be shooting a, a TV um, drama there in a, in a few weeks. So in that sense, it's such a self-conscious city now. It's a different city in that way. Do you like the city how it is now more, or do you feel that that's lost uh, that, um, that? Well, I'm, I'm, I suppose, um, sentimentally attached to, to the, the possibilities of how it was when I was young. I'm still interested in it. I'm really interested in, in the changes, because it's a city that keeps reinventing itself totally. I'm, I'm not so comfortable with it now, but I mean, whether that's just what's happened to London or whether it's just getting old, I don't, I don't know. But it, it seems much harsher as a city, and uh, the divisions between the very rich and the very poor are more extreme. I mean, if you just, you know, just walk again back across here, I could show umpteen places where people are just sleeping in bushes and so on, and at the same time there are these uh, old terraced houses that are now worth two million quid.
So, so who, can, who can afford to live in them? It's a very conflicted city, but it's dramatic, and, and there are big changes afoot. And some of your, your projects have involved uh, these long walks mm. around the M25, around the London Overground. Yep. Do you think you could do those projects, perhaps not the, the London Overground one, but do you think if you did the projects which involved the M25 now with London, how would you think, how would you describe London if you redid that project? Well, it's, it's quite interesting. I did that uh, walking around the M25 project just before the millennium in, in 1999. So we were, we were actually looking for a moment of change. And the, the motorway already felt outdated. It felt like an antique at that time. And it took a year out of my life doing, doing the book because I was only doing one walk a month, picking up from where I dropped off. And it, it seemed to involve absorbing an enormous amount of material about things that were disappearing, like the old hospitals and asylums at the edge of the city. But when I was talking about this to some students recently in Canterbury, this young woman got up and said, like, oh, yeah, that, I, I read that book. It was quite interesting. So I decided to run around it. So she had actually translated what I was doing into the medium of the moment. And she'd run around it in three days or two and a half days or something. And, and, and didn't feel the obligation to absorb the kind of material I was absorbing. It was just to get the the physicality, the experience, the buzz of, of covering that ground in a short time. So maybe that's how things move. You know, you, you, someone else will adapt to doing it in a different way. Uh, when I was doing it, there were people like Bill, Bill Drummond um, was driving around non-stop at the spring equinox as a kind of uh, occult, magical act of just driving around this circle of London non-stop for 24 hours and then burying a plaque by the roadside. So, so um, people devise their own magic for coping with the overwhelming mystery of the city. It's really fascinating because from the M25 you have this perspective uh, of, of the London mm. and in it you start by talking about the Millennium Dome as a meteor, a Teflon meteorite. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you... Well, I, I, I was really, the... I really decided fairly early on this was a big symbol of the emerging London because it really was nothing, there was nothing there, it was an empty tent and, um, and yet it involved so much hype that New Labour invested so much bullshit in it, it was going to be the millennium moment but they actually had nothing to put inside it, that came last and I could see that very early because I got a tour of it and I kept asking well, what, what happens here, what, they just didn't know, they were just, they were just bluffing and then it came to it and there was nothing. And then in the end, it's sort of converted into this O2 arena, which is a sort of a doing everything that they said they were not doing, because it was supposed to be completely green, there were no cars to be parked, and yet it's become this huge hub with snarled-up traffic trying to get into the Blackwall Tunnel. And so I, I wanted to get rid of that whole idea of that by pushing this circle into a, into a grand way that took the whole of London. But just today, before I came out here, I was, I was going through some archive stuff, and I found a a long letter from some kind of urban visionary at the time I was writing that. And he said, did I know that the um, distance around the Millennium Dome was exactly the same as around the Stone Circle at Avebury? I mean, so all kinds of weird calculations that saw this thing as a kind of piece of botched magic. And, uh, and walking counterclockwise around the M25 was my my attempt to sort of exorcise what I thought was going on there. 
the Millennium Dome represents this excess of, of global capitalism in, in yeah. many ways yeah. with New Labour. And, and, uh, and, uh, and unreality, I mean, it's sort of virtual reality dominating real reality. The idea that you, your sort of computer-generated versions are better than the real thing. If there, in fact, there is no real thing, because they're just as real. So once you've made your projections of a future, and people accept those projections, they're no longer the future. They, they exist. Um, as with the River Lee, you know, when, when uh, the Olympic developments were going on, all of the fences around covered you from actually seeing what was physically there in the terrain, and there were pictures put up along the fences of what they imagined it would be. But a lot of people, by brainwashing, actually became, came to accept that these computer-generated versions with, with humans who'd never existed, that were just photoshopped in, was a, was a truth. And I thought this was a really critical moment for London when those sort of versions overwhelm the evidence that you'd have to get the eyesore evidence which is a very good, very good phrase because it's exactly a combination of, uh, of what you see. I saw, I physically saw, I saw, I witnessed, I did it, I earned it. And uh, the sore eyes from staring at the kind of dust and dirt and, and muck of construction that stands between you and the utopian visions created by robotic machines. It's interesting because the Millennium Dome was one point in London's development and the London Olympics is, is another. Mm. And if you look at Stratford now, it looks like yeah. a, mini, a mini Dubai. Yeah, with yeah, high-rise yeah. flats, uh, luxury apartments mm. and, and shopping centres. Yes. Well, How did that change well, your perspective on London? Well, I think what, what changed my perspective then was, I was, again, I was walking, wandering around, and I was in um, Stratford. And we just went into a library. I wanted to research some stuff in the local library, but they don't have any local history anymore. But as it so happened, they had a maquette of what the proposed Olympic parkland and development was going to be. This is way ahead of it actually being done. And I looked at that and I, and I could see, well, what's, what's all this? And I said, well, that's Westfield um, Shopping Mall. And it was blatantly obvious from this point on that, that actually you were not creating an Olympic park, you were creating a mega shopping mall which had a, a kind of attachment which you'd have to pass through this mall to get at. And that was quite an eye-opener. And then the same thing happening out in Shepherd's Bush with the Westfield there. And now the development is occurring from Wilsdon down to Shepherd's Bush, exactly as it did in the, in the River Lee, where all kinds of uh, buildings and uh, people who've been there forever are being pushed aside and obliterated in this sort of a creation of a, of a sort of Dubai theme park, um, university, arts facilities, things that nobody quite knows what they are, but they just put them up and wonder. And so you, you end up with this park that's not really a park in the sense of Victoria Park, it's more a park in the sense of a Disneyland theme park that represents some kind of imposed from above version of what the city ought to be. And that is the new London, as against the centre, which is allowed to empty and die, because so many properties are just owned by offshore investors. Many people look at the history of London in the last century and look at the developments and the progression uh, and the, the, uh, the, the benefits that people have got mm. from the city. How would you respond to that when you talk about things like development and investment? Well, I, don't know. I wonder what the benefits... Obviously, there's, there's wealth being created enormously, but not sort of really for 
the people of London. Um, although, ironically, it, it works very well as a, as a, as a multicultural city and, and wants to remain that way, whereas now, because of the, the voting of people who are excluded from London, this sort of a connection with Europe, which seemed culturally important anyway, is, is sort of broken and the, the fear of the immigrant has emerged. Um, and, and so London's success, I think, is, is questionable. It's, it's, it's a weird success, it's sort of surreal success, in that the whole of that downriver section around the city airport and all that is now Chinese-owned, and they're, they're um, throwing people out of old marinas to create new oligarch-type marinas and enormous conference centres and hotels for a kind of... Uh, really J.G. Ballard-type city that, that could be anywhere. It doesn't have any intimate connection with the nature and soul of London as it has been in the past. What you're talking about is what, a nostalgic view of London. It's, uh, it's uh, a, Yeah, it is nostalgic, but it's do not... You, it's do not, you feel that you have something in common with the current political climate of no. the retrogradation of... I don't of think the, so. I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think either, you know... I'm not going for the sort of nostalgia of um, the John Betjeman type belief that you must preserve these quaint Victorian buildings or any of that stuff. I have a kind of nostalgia for a, a version of London which might be my own invention, which is it was was off Gothic and, and dirty and dangerous as well as as well as grand, um, but. Uh, it was more honest, I think, in some ways, in, in, its, in its corruptions. There were kind of petty corruptions. Now it's almost impossible to see what's happening. And, um, and the manipulations are, are kind of in, intriguing, that you, you can, what you've created happening into this sort of hipster zone, which is self-fulfilling prophecy and was un, completely unimaginable when I moved in. And yet, obviously, by moving in at that time and so many other people were doing the same thing because it was cheap. You were, you were already sowing the seeds for what was going to come along later. Um, and around Brick Lane and places where I used to work, uh, you, you, know, you could see people already way back in the 70s beginning to buy up property because they had the vision of turning it into something that would, uh, would, would attract tourists and, and people who are going to become seriously nostalgic about retro, so you start to produce so vinyl records and things that look like they were made in 1960. You still seem very engaged with, with London and with the issues um, mm. that are emerging in, in, in a global city and, and what's changing and the Olympic yeah. Park. Yeah. Why have you decided that this is going to be your last? Well, last I, I, I'm, I'm, I've come to a book called The Last London, so because I've been doing it a, you know, a very long time, and I could see with each decade that passed how I would shift in the way I dealt with it. So, so I was starting out just living, living around here uh, with no money at all, you know, and, and doing odd labouring jobs and writing kind of diary-like material and, and poetry, which you could publish through small presses. And take my time researching some of the weirder aspects like connections between Hawksmoor churches. It was all, there was no idea that anybody else would ever really engage with this sort of subject, but there was a great freedom to do it. And then uh, came a time when it was possible to do fiction. It was almost large-scale Gothic fictions of London as a city of 
ghosts and disappearances. That had its time and then emerged uh, in the 90s. It was open to what became called psychogeography or the conceptual readings of cities and walkings and journeys. And, and then I, I felt that worked towards really the time of the Olympic Games when all this came to a, a head. And after that, it's changed, as I was saying before, into a, into a, a city that feels very different and has lost its root connection to the things I'd done all the time. So it felt logical to come to the end of a sequence because I think if you were going to do something substantial about London after this, you'd have to use different means. You'd be, you'd be doing something that was more in tune with the digital media. I don't think people have the time and the, even the skill to navigate their way through the architecture of big books. It's, it's too time-consuming a process, too difficult a process. Uh, so there's a different kind of writing emerging. I think, you know, I think people obviously will still go on doing it, but, it, but new forms emerge each time. And as far as I was concerned, this is, this is sort of the end of my own personal take on it. At the same time, as, an, as a, new, a new cycle of London was emerging. So for you, does this... I mean, London itself is obviously not... No, is, it's not the this, last London. Is this the death of Ian Sinclair's London, along with the death of... I, I think it's, 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 it's the end of the kind of London well. that I've, I've written about, which was, which was finite, and I think there's new, new Londons emerge, and I think different kinds of writing will, will, will deal with that in, in ways that I can't even foresee at the moment. May not even be written. It may may be some form of um, film, blog, whatever. But but the pro the process goes on because so so many million people live here and they they are engaged with the city and there are there is a sort of desperation for the city to tell its own versions through people. It ventriloquizes people. Some people become fascinated by the idea, obsessed by the idea of this particular city as against other cities. And I think there are things. Still, plenty of qualities that are singular to London. Do you think there's a uniqueness about London? Yeah, I do. I do think that. That's what I, what I kind of stumbled on earlier. I thought, I thought there was something that was very special. And even even I've been to lots lots of different cities that were intriguing in different ways. I still think London offers itself as a written city, almost above all all others. Uh, um, partly because it's had a long long tradition of that and newer cities have, have uh, less to draw on, but um, also because being northern and, and damp and the kind of strangeness of the light, it's, it's been a city for writers to, to a certain degree more than visual artists, I mean, not, not completely, but, but I think that's been the dominant form. And um, I, think, I think I've kind of come to the, to the end of that cycle for myself. I, I mean, I can see that I might well abandon that and do something else, but I think it would be very different. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be as if trying to engage with London and letting aspects of London reveal themselves through the different books I did. And moving on from, from London, is there anywhere else that you'd like to write about? Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much time I've got. But, uh, I, I, am, I was planning um, a book that I've picked out from time to time, um, set in Peru, which I'm reading reading around at the moment, based on um, my great grandfather who wrote wrote a book about a particular journey 
way back in 1890s when he made contact with a particular indigenous group on, on the Amazon and had various adventures and was, was looking at land to see if he could grow coffee and kept a very interesting account of that. And um, some, somehow, because his writing was similar in, in tone to, to how I write, I was very surprised when I read this book and I thought he's, he's doing the same thing in this territory, which was as strange to him as I was trying to do in describing Limehouse or Shadwell or the A13. He was talking about somewhere really wild, like the Amazon, and yet it, it felt very much the same. So I thought, you know, so I, I don't know anything about him or that side of my family or why they had to um, leave Scotland and, and take up this kind of strange life. So I thought, you know, it might be interesting to engage with that. And it's so far away from what I've done up to now that it's, it's interesting. Would you engage in it in the same way? Would you go out walking? Um, I would, but I th also in different ways. I think uh, I would like it to have more freedom, more kind of fictional quality to it. And also the research, I can never get to the level of research that I put into London. You know, I've never, whatever happens anywhere else, I could never do that now. And I, I, I uh, so I would have to write in a different way about whatever comes next. What have been some of the strangest walks that you've taken and had the most unexpected? Events? Well, I guess going around the M25 was um, not what it revealed being unexpected, but the idea—the idea to do it and the kind of impulse to actually walk around a motorway or as close as you could to a motorway was so odd, an idea, that it led into the subsequent ones like the London Overground, which was a miniaturised version of that in a sense. But um, again, that aspects of that have come into um, last London in an interesting way because I followed a spur down to Croydon, and Croydon seems to be like an end-of-the-world place in lots of ways, and all kinds of dark stuff happens in Croydon. And there, Croydon is a city with an imposed new version uh, on top of a very old and established place that was not London, but now the railway connection makes it intriguing. So it's I, a satellite city. It's a satellite city. The city. It was a good walk because I was doing that walk with a poet called Stephen Watts, who's, who's a friend of um, W.G. Sebald and who actually appears as a character in one of his books. And so, you know, doing this walk together was like walking with a ghost of Sebald who does a particular kind of walking of his own. And also advancing on Croydon, where Stephen's grandfather, who was an Italian, had, had set up an ice cream parlour, so he was very keen to go there. Was his, and that really, really worked very well. And, and then again, I went from uh, Gospel Oak to Barking, which following a, this part, branch of the Ginger Line, which isn't even open. So it's like a perfect symbol for London. You know, it's advertised to open last June. It hasn't opened yet. It's been one cock up after another. And you pass through a sort of amazing curve of London if you start on Gospel Oak. And then you fin finish up the day embarking. You've 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 really made some weird 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 connections. So that the walks are still out there to be touched. Which are your favourite favourite places to walk in London? Uh, well, they, they change. I mean, my my uh, favourite as as much as anything is just a, sort of various particular circuits around Hackney that take in London Fields, Victoria Park, the Canal, I and mean, this that and the other.
Otherwise, um, whatever comes up, I'm starting on Sunday, um, walking Watling Street from Dover to Westminster with Andrew Cotting, who I've done film projects and walking things with before. But it's in, a, in a way, it's like just to have a conversation with him because we're both so busy, we don't get a chance to discuss things. And partly because this is a project of someone else's that uh, is going to be an event in Brighton in May. I think Alan Moore is doing the stretch of Watling Street that goes through Northampton and various other people. And so that's, that's just nice because I really don't know anything about it. It's, 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 it's novel and that new territory is always interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. And that's just about it. Thank you to Ian for taking the time to visit Chris's flat and really, really sorry to hear you got lost in the way. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you want to find any of Ian's books, any good bookshop will have his work. And if they don't, well, I guess they should. Next up, we have Ninitune's Sarathi Cordward, whose most recent album not only blew listeners and critics away, but is an amazing study of the relationship between place and music. An integral part of the jazz renaissance flowing from London, we're really, really excited to have him in the studio. Until next week, thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.